Hi everyone, I'm Riyadh Alkyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Hello everyone and welcome to Dignified Resilience. It's my great pleasure and honor to have two guests today, two dear friends and, well, a friend and a husband (laughs) with me, but uh, both very accomplished scholars um, in their field, people who whom I always have intellectually very stimulating conversations with and whom I miss, especially during this pandemic. It's really a pleasure to welcome Shadi Hamid and Mustafa Akiol today to the podcast. And before I welcome them and greet them and allow them to say hi, I would like to tell to the viewers or listeners who are not familiar with their prolific professional work who they are. Shadi Hamid is a senior fellow in the project on U.S. relations with the Islamic world in the Center for Middle East Policy and at Brookings Institution. He's the author of Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World, which was shortlisted for the 2017 Lionel Gelber Prize. He's also the co-editor, Will Will McCann's of Rethinking Political Islam, co-author of Militants, Criminals, and Warlords, The Challenge of Local Governance in an Age of Disorder. His first book, Temptations of Power, Islamists, and Illiberal Democracy in the New Middle East, was named a Foreign Affairs Best Book of 2014. He's also a contributing writer at The Atlantic. He's been called a prominent thinker of the relig- on religion and politics in The New York Times. He was named as one of the world's top 50 thinkers in 2019 by Prospect Magazine and much more. Uh, so we will, we will talk about a lot of things that he works on and it's a pleasure to have him on. And my other guest is Mustafa Akil, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, where he focuses on the intersection of public policy, Islam, and modernity. He's a Turkish journalist and author. He worked for more than a decade on, as opinion columnist in Korea Daily News, the Middle East-focused Al-Monitor. Since 2013, he's also been a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, He's the author of Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty, praised by the Financial Times as a forthright and elegant Muslim defense of freedom. That book, kind of like Shadi's, actually was longlisted for 2012 Lionel Gelber Prize. Um, It's been published in Turkish, Malay, and Indonesian. Subsequently, it was banned in Malaysia in 2017 after his short arrest by the country's religious police merely because Akil delivered a public lecture defending religious freedom. And now that um, Malay's uh, edition, I, I think it's freely 
uh, available on the Cato Institute website, and I think actually it's available in Malaysia now as well. So he's the author of The Islam of Jesus, How the King of the Jews Became a Prophet of the Muslims, which received praise from the New York Times. He's the author of six books in Turkish, including Rethinking the Kurdish Question, and his new book, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance, a deep dive into Islamic theology and philosophy, is coming out in April 2021. And one more, of course, two small details. He happens to be my husband as well. And uh, <laughs> so happy to have uh, Shadi finally as the gathering catalyst for this. And I saw tweets recently about Mustafa's TED Talk, which I really, really, really warmly recommend to everyone. It's on faith versus tradition in Islam. It's been watched by more than 1.2 million people or it has more than 1.2 million views. When did you do it, Mustafa? 2011. Okay, so inshallah, it's time for a new one. So anyways, assalamu alaikum. Hi, I wanted to say assalamu alaikum to kind of put forthright our one part of our identities and why I always love our conversations because despite different background, I'm Bosnian, Muslim, uh, Mustafa has, Mustafa is Turkish, Turkish background. Shadi is American Muslim with Egyptian background. We've kind of come together and it's always really, really fun to talk on all sorts of topics. So long story short, it's your fault because you are so prolific and successful. Welcome to Dignified Resilience. How are you today? Shadi. Hi, Riata. Thanks for having us. I mean, you, you make us sound pretty awesome. So appreciate that introduction. Also, it's funny that you know, the, when the New York Times called me a prominent uh, Muslim thinker on religion and politics, the person who wrote that was Mustafa. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Right, kind of. Yeah, so that, that's kind of, yeah, it's kind of funny. But th thank you, Mustafa, for saying that about me in the Times. Yo, you're welcome anytime. Yeah. I mean, that was a fact, so like I, I didn't make it up, but yeah, it's true, and though. It's, it's true. I told Shadi, I think during this summer when there was a big um, conversation in the United States, and I say this because the audience is global, with a letter uh, that Shadi signed and that I don't really want to talk about because that's not kind of what I want to talk about today. And then several times later, I said, Shadi, you're literally uncancelable. And, mm. and then I had to add so far, considering how, you know, I don't know how things have progressed in the United States on Twitter, uh, at least online. Well, that's nice of you to say, and I, I haven't been canceled yet. So I'm um, like a four or five months after that famous Harper's letter. I think I'm still fine. But it's real. It's hard to be canceled when you're brown. Thank God. And oh. Muslim. <laughs> yeah. So you see, even though Mustafa and I, I think in Chippen, live in the United States, I feel that we have so much on our plates that we also deal with professionally, me in terms of Bosnian genocide, denial and memorialization, and most of trying to spread this idea of freedom uh, within a Muslim majority countries as well, that we don't talk too much about US politics because it's very complicated. And I feel that I really just want to stay out of it because it's a very tumultuous period. And you got to just pick not your battles, but where you really think you want to bringing some nuance because i feel that there is a lot of nuance i would want to bring as a bosnian muslim to all all sorts of conversations that go on in the united states about islam but i'm just patiently waiting to you know <laughs> become a citizen or just feel uh, more here at peace so and one thing that i want to say is that 
contrary to potentially popular opinion, even though Mustafa is my husband, we don't necessarily agree all the time on every single thing. He's smiling, but or just kind of the emotional approach that we take to things. But when it comes to things related to Islam, I I support him and I think he has the heart in the right place. And that's why I enjoy conversations with you too, because sometimes I don't understand Shadi's contrarianism. You're laughing, but sometimes I'm just, Shadi, is this a joke or is it not a joke anymore? Because I can't figure it out. Did you get it from other people ever? Well, no, I mean, um, yeah, people sometimes call me a contrarian, including my friends. Um, You know, uh, I like to be provocative. I don't love the label contrarian unless it's from my friends because, I mean, I, I... I believe in the things that I say. Sometimes I have a playful aspect where I push people a little bit because that can sometimes elicit an interesting response. But if I'm writing something publicly in an article or whatever, um, I mean what I say. And I, um, so it's contrarian only relative to the group think that I think we're seeing on on a lot of issues having to do with U.S. politics. I'm not a contrarian, I think, when it comes to the whole debate around Islam and France. That's where I found myself in, um, among, you know, I think that's where I'm a little bit more normal, at least for Americans. And there's a big divide, I think, too, between how Americans view the Islam and France debate. And you talk to French interlocutors, and it's almost a different world. But I'm sure we'll talk about some of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what both of you are good at online, which not a lot of people want to choose, is that you want to engage in constructive argument and conversation and exchange, even with people who attack you. I I wrote recently, Mustafa is also good at apologizing, willing to be engaged, even when people bit hate. So that's, that's a rarity. And I think why three of us, even when we might disagree on something, listen to each other. So that said, Mustafa, or both of you, I don't want this to be just about France and Islam and what's going on over there. And I do also think that we need to be listening to a lot of French Muslims, considering that from all I learned, they don't get a chance to talk a lot about their experiences um, in the French media. So I know that both of you wrote or spoke about it. Mustafa, tell me shortly your updated views about how do you see the situation in France, and considering that it's obviously ongoing, and then Shadi as well, and we'll go from there. Thanks, Riada. Uh, it's a great pleasure to discuss with you and Shadi uh, through Zoom this time, and uh, thanks for hosting us so graciously and kindly. I wrote the, uh, an article in Foreign Policy, you know, which had the title, its title summarizes my point. It said, yes, Islam is, in a, Islam is facing a crisis. But no, France is not helping solve it. The first sentence was referring to the fact that, referring to a speech Macron, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, had back in October before the terrorist attacks, the recent ones. He had a speech where he said Islam is a religion that is in a crisis all over the world. And a lot of Muslims reacted to that, like, who are you to tell us this, and so on and so forth. And at that time, I said, well... Macron might not be the right person to speak about this, that's a different thing, but the content of the comment that there's a crisis, well, that's something we Muslims have also, some of us have granted. Uh, Actually, majority of Muslims would agree that the Islamic world is in some crisis. I mean, Islamists will say it's in crisis for different reasons, 
But I'm all, even of the opinion that we can speak of religion facing a crisis because by religion, I don't mean the divine core of it that every Muslim believes in like myself. But I mean, when we say religion, there's a, there's a jurisprudence, there are religious interpretations that are in a crisis in the sense that they have a strong tension with some of the values that have been established in the modern world, values like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, equality before law. And in, in most Muslim-majority countries, you have tensions that are arising out of this. The tensions between the Islamists who want to bring the Islamic law back and impose it through the state, and you have the secularists who want to crush the Islamist with authoritarian means. Of course, in every country, it's different. But there is a tension, and there are people who will say democracy is kufr, and, you know, or th there are people who will say the Shia are kafir, I mean, unbelievers, and some of them even attack them. And religions can be in crises. I mean, Christianity was in a worse crisis, I think, in the 16th and 17th century when Protestants and Catholics were killing each other uh, in, through religious wars in Europe. But they grew out of that, by and large, through ideas of toleration, which, you know, where the Enlightenment comes into the scene. So I'm of the persuasion that we Muslims have certain values like tolerance and freedom and pluralism within our tradition, but we are in a we are in a troubling era where those values have been faded and they need to reassert it in the light of the modern realities and so on and so forth. So I agree with that basic idea. And I agree with, by the way, and I don't think that uh, terrorist attacks that are happening in the name of Islam in France or elsewhere are happening in a way that has nothing to do with Islam, as some people would say. Uh, of course, those terrorists, ISIS, Al-Qaeda militants, I mean, they killed innocent people. They are very extreme. That's why we call them extremists. They attack fellow Muslims as well. But they are acting in the name of Islam with certain jurisprudential justifications, with certain uh, religious groundings, and their religious message is out there, and it's even shared by a group of people even broader, a bit broader themselves. And uh, their motivation, which is to punish those who insult Islam, is the law in Pakistan or several other Muslim-majority states, and it puts innocent people in jail. So yes, we have a problem here, and we Muslims need to think about these issues. Uh, and manif one manifestation is extremism, other manifestations are oppressive interpretations of religion that you can see, not all, but various Muslim-majority states. So I'm somebody who's thinking about these issues. Yes, I admit there's a crisis. On the other hand, France is not the best you know, country to speak about this, given its history, okay. Plus, two, for two reasons, it doesn't have a good, uh, I mean, France speaks about freedom, right? France is not a very good beacon of freedom when you look at freedom of religion, because I said France is promoting freedom from religion, but when you come to freedom of religion, there are serious limitations, especially that has been uh, limiting on the Muslim uh, population there. Hijab bans uh, the being the most ex uh, clear example. And uh, on the other hand, France champions freedom of speech. I said, well, France is also not the best country to uh, champion freedom of speech because France has severe limitations on freedom of speech from a different perspective, not on religious issues, but it's illegal in France to insult the flag or the national anthem, even mayors, you know, there's a, there's a new law banning insulting the mayors. I, I listed those in, the, in that article. And I said, well, freedom is in, indeed an important value, 
but let's uh, defend it in a more principled way. And I contrasted uh, U.S. and France there, and I believe the U.S. standards of both freedom of religion and freedom of speech are higher than France. And I said they're more helpful. Uh, and one reason that's one reason, not the only reason, but Muslims in America are generally better integrated. Uh, and also, I mean, I'm somebody who's been lecturing about these issues around the Muslim world. Whenever I speak of freedom, the common ex the objection I have from Muslim audiences, what freedom are you talking about? The one that bans our hijab, you know, in France. And I have to explain, no, 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 that's actually a bad interpretation of, or at least a troubled interpretation of secularity. You know, there's another different interpretation of which, which emphasizes religious freedom. So uh, France is a country that has suffered terrorism. I, on that, I'm with the French people, with society. I, I share my condolences to the victims and their families. Uh, so on that, there's no doubt. Uh, and, uh, but what I think the tools the Macron government is using now are not right in principle. Also, they might prove counterproductive in terms of not helping French Muslims better integrate, but it can actually create reaction, grudge, and more cultural ghettoization. Thank you for that. Actually, you answered a couple of questions that I had as a follow-up. Uh, follow no, no, no problem. We will talk a little bit more in depth about the crisis part. I want to hear Shadi's thoughts on um, his perspective shortly, I mean, about laicite, and uh, he's been pretty vocal about why he opposes French government's actions. So. What's the freshest version, freshest vision of the things that are kind of progressing and they're evolving and there are new things, new laws that have been proposed since Macron's first statement that Islam is in crisis, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's kind of absurd that Macron would say something like Islam is in crisis all over the world. I mean, first of all, um, Macron doesn't really know a lot about Islam, clearly. Um, and all over the world covers a lot of countries. I mean, is Islam in crisis in Senegal? Is Islam in crisis in Cote d'Ivoire? I mean, these are these are countries that have um, you know Muslim majorities or close to it, and and you know not all of them are really struggling. So we also have to be specific about which countries we're talking about. The Middle East isn't everything. There's a lot of Muslims who don't live in the Middle East. Um, is the Middle East in crisis? Yes. Um, but I would argue, and maybe this is a different issue, that um, the biggest problem in the Middle East is not Islam. The biggest problem in the Middle East is dictatorship. And few things distort Islam more than secular authoritarian states. We have to be careful about calling them secular because obviously these are regimes that interfere in religion and control religious production. So they're not secular in the American sense, but they claim to be uh, more modern, less religious, less Islamist, and so on. And they're a big part of the problem. So I remember when I heard Macron saying that, it, it felt to me like he was trolling Muslims. And um, he's been trolling Muslims quite regularly, actually. I mean, he also had a tweet um, after the horrific attacks. And... Of course, I agree with Mustafa that you know these horrific terrorist attacks, including a beheading, I mean, very, very you know, terrible stuff here, um, that we should express solidarity with the French. But that doesn't mean we have to agree with what the French government does. And that's where I draw a clear distinction. Solidarity, but then let's be honest about 
um, holding the French government to account if they're going too far. And one of one of his troll things after that was he had this tweet where he said, um, "Les cités n'a jamais tué personne," which means um, I guess uh, Les cités has never killed anyone before. Um, and obviously, when you're saying that, you're you're implicitly making a contrast with Islam because you know if you're saying Les cités has never killed anyone. What's the alternative to that? He's sort of suggesting that, you know, Islam apparently seems to be causing problems where people are killed, so on and so forth. And if your goal is to integrate Muslims and make them feel like they have a stake in society, why are you going out of your way to annoy them or to make them feel that they're under attack? I mean, if I was a French Muslim and I saw all the things that Macron is saying, but also other ministers in in his government the interior minister has been quite vocal i think in quite problematic ways where he was um railing against um halal food aisles and supermarkets obviously halal aisles and supermarkets has nothing to do with jihadism or terrorism or beheading so is this really about terrorism is this really about a security threat or is it about something broader which is the widespread French discomfort with any kind of conservative expression of religion. And that to me is the main issue here because um, when French officials say, oh, no, don't worry, we're not targeting Muslims, we're not targeting Islam, we're only targeting political Islam or radical Islam, I don't buy it. And we have to call them out because it's actually wrong. If you look what French officials are targeting, there are a number of things that have to do with individual religious practice, which they're criticizing. So, for, and, and Mustafa talked about this, I think, quite eloquently in his foreign policy piece. The fact that uh, you know, head, the fact that the headscarf is restricted in public schools, or the fact that um, French Muslim women cannot wear the headscarf in civil service. So, if they're working in a state institution. Um, that's a problem. And you might say, well, that's just people who are in the civil service, not a big deal, but there are 5 million French people who are in the civil service. So if you're a young Muslim and you're thinking to yourself, oh, I want to serve my country and be in the government, but oh, oops, I wear the headscarf. And if I want to aspire to this at some point, I'll have to take it off. That is a really problematic thing where you're asking French citizens to choose between their Muslim identity and their French identity. Or when a big a big debate in France has to do with French women, French Muslim women who, who aren't comfortable swimming in mixed gender settings in swimming pools, that has nothing to do with political Islam. That's a personal choice. If you are a Muslim woman and you're a little bit more on the strict conservative side, you should be able to make your own choice about who you swim with. You're not you're not forcing anyone else to swim only with in female only swimming pools. You're just saying, hey, that's not what I want to do. What does that have to do with political Islam? So what's going on here, I think, is that political Islam or Islamism, a lot of um, French officials and, and European commentators more generally, they're not talking about Islamism. They're talking about conservative Islam. And we have to be careful about making a distinction between Islamism and people who just happen to be conservative because you don't want to demonize 
the 40% of French Muslims, and I'm just, there's one poll I'm just thinking about right now, where 40% of French Muslims said that they privilege their Muslim identity over the values of the Republic. So it's not a majority. French Muslims are diverse. Some are quite secular, but there's a significant minority that take their religious identity very seriously. And basically French officials are telling them, you're not good enough. You're bad because you don't fully subscribe to French secularism. Yeah, I think um, Mustafa and you agree on majority of those parts. I agree, I agree with that too. And um, I, I would just like to shortly add, I spent part of my high school in Samalo. I spent another year in Paris studying at Sciences Po. I'm, I know the culture. I speak the language. I read the kind of things. I haven't had bad experiences. I have beautiful memories from that period of my life. But a nuance that I would just like to add that you said it's about conservative expressions of religion. And one thing that I actually listened to um, from Professor Jocelyne Cesari, who is an expert and actually who grew up in the system. And she said recently in a conversation with Muqtadar Khan, explained it very well that it's French laicite has almost inhuman understanding of religion that puts it either at home or in the place of worship. So when you said, for example, Shadi, it's about conservative expressions, but if you express anything religious, you are not seen as a good citizen. You are right. And she also said that. So um, reiterating that it's very hard in France for any believer. And she said that the issue is that all other religions have adjusted to that. Catholics, according to Professor Cesari, it took them half a century to accept the separation. The Jews, they negotiated case by case according to schools and circumstances. They never wanted to make it a political issue. And then she also says that Muslims also didn't start to make a political issue in France since the public school system in 1989, which kind of started making it public, publicly an issue with um, hijab, and it never stopped and actually became worse. So that nuance about French state always being intrusive on what is religion does not start just with Islam, it's political culture. And again, this, there are many experts in French scholars and French Muslims who have said it. I would like to ask both of you for also an opinion on this. She says, Islam makes it more challenging for two reasons. The Muslims come after very deep secularization of most of French citizens. If you today interview any French, the majority would say they're nominal Catholic, like they belong, but they don't believe. They don't consider it that it has any influence in their life. If you look at Muslims, um, and Shadi, I think you mentioned a poll, I, uh, if I caught it right, but they said that 80% of them said that religion is important in their life. So in a country like France, which according to Professor Cesari is obsessed by what they call equality, but it's not equality in rights, it's equality in lifestyle, that seems like a very problematic reality right now. My question is, Despite all these realities that she and other experts, and you too, I think, also would acknowledge about immigration policies, about urban policies, about discrimination, which, again, let's repeat, happens both on governmental and societal level, increasingly for all Muslims, from what I hear and learn from them, from over there, regardless of the level of expression, I, from what I hear, just being Muslim is a kind of becoming a way and reason for more um, interrogation or just suspicion unfortunately. 
But despite all that, I want your opinion on this, which will kind of move us towards this conversation on crisis part, disregarding maybe even that it was Macron who said it, because you deconstructed both of you why that's kind of hypocritical and two-faced, that she also said something very important, Professor Cesare, that she said, I read Dubik, ISIS magazine. They do it and publish it in English and French. And the French part has nothing to do with religion or geopolitics. It's all about the typical familiar thing that we've seen from Al-Qaeda as well before, and that's they're taking your soul as Muslim. And that's very, to vulnerable young people, that's very powerful way of attracting them. Mustafa, tell me, what do you think about this thing that Shadi also said? Surely Islam is not everywhere in crisis. Uh, I don't think Islam is in crisis in Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, despite certain different kind of ideologies that have kept on coming in after the war, and it's not in crisis everywhere. But how are we going to deal? And do you agree with Shadi Mustafa that it's not religion, it is institutions, it's the political systems that are not stemming from some religious injunctions or interpretations? And how do you see, if you want to comment on this thing that she said, that the Catholics and Jews in France adjusted, but the Muslims have not yet accepted that? I think I caught a tweet recently that Shadi said, Muslims will really change Europe. In case if this happens, and of course we know Shadi thinks Islam is exceptional and all that, we'll talk about it too. But honestly, how do you see this in France and then in general? Uh, I agree with Shadi on France. I don't fully agree with him on the scene in the Muslim world. And let me try to explain. Uh, I agree with him totally that, you know, I mean, it's typical. We don't target Islam, we target Islamism. Okay. You don't target mosques. We appreciate that. That's fine. It's not China. Okay. That happens in China. Okay. So there's, France is still a liberal democracy, not the maybe most liberal one, but there is religious freedom in that level. However, as Shadi said, they are turning into a problem the fact that a 16-year-old high school uh, girl with a Muslim family and her Muslim doesn't want to swim it. They want to swim with the you know boys with a swimsuit. They say, "Oh my God, she, she's upholding her religious values over the values of the republic." I mean, there is this obsession in France about the republic, like a demigod, and that it will have values that people should buy into that and so on and so forth. And there will be always a clash between the republic and the religion, and religion should be subsumed. And that's a better society. This is fundamentally a confrontational understanding of religion as a state. What should happen is that religion... Peaceful religious practices should be accommodated and respected. Typical example, in the UK, there was a helmet law in the 1970s. It was one of the iconic cases. A law was brought that everybody who wears a motorcycle should wear a helmet. But the Sikh said, but we're wearing our turban, you know, it's our religious duty. Then an exception was made to the law for the Sikhs, you know, because their religious practice was respected. In France, it would be oh, no, you cannot be about the republic and you have to respect the laws of the republic and that obsession would go on. Uh, I, I know why France is doing this because I know it was done in Turkey and Turkey imitated Laicite to some extent. I mean, Turkey didn't imitate the fact that state should be independent from religion. Turkey dominated the state, but it imitated 
the idea that religion should be subdued and religious symbols should be kept under control. If they're too visible, they will become oppressive. So that was the logic. The same with the logic, you know, headscarf is, is banned in hijab. All religious symbols, of course, cross, kippah, but it's Muslims generally who, who think they have to wear those uh, religious symbols, in this case, the hijab. Uh, and they think by doing this, by curbing communalism and making individual Muslims fully subservient to the secular environment without any visibility of religion, they will become fully French and they will fall in love into this. I'm saying quite the contrary, you will build a grudge, which is exactly what happened in Turkey. The headscarf ban in Turkey was imposed by the Kemalists. And Turkey was harsher than France, by the way. I mean, Turkey went nuts. They banned headscarf in all universities. In France, you can, in a university you can wear, just not in high schools. Turkey banned it in universities, even private universities. So Turkish Kemalists were the craziest of all, I mean, in this, in this secular obsession landscape. And they were thinking, if we do this, if we impose this, those girls who will take their headscarf off will come to the campus, they will fall in love with the values of the Republic, and they will be all good Kemalists in 10 years, 20 years. What rather happened was it built such a grudge that it ultimately gave you the conservative revenge that is driving Turkish politics in the past 20 years, in the past two decades. Uh, I mean, in Turkey, in France, Muslims are not a minority. That's not going to happen. But I worry that this imposition will, uh, some Muslims will say, okay, we, we go with the law, whatever that is. But there will be more room for entrenchment to cultural ghettos. There will be more propaganda. You see, they want to take you out of Islam. You see, they want to make you, you know, wear a mini uh, skirt or uh, like a swimming suit. You see, this is them and, and that propaganda. So this is wrong in principle and also counterproductive. That's the point. And I think we should have an honest conversation with the French politicians on this. The fact that a French interior minister says he has a problem when he sees halal food and kosher right away in supermarkets, I mean, that is, I mean, they didn't turn this into a law, but I can't imagine a French, an American politician, you know, saying that. Uh, and uh, I can't imagine an American politician saying uh, schools should be a place where we raise citizens, not worshipers, as if there should be a conflict. Macron said that schools should raise citizens, not worshipers, as if worshipers are not the ideal citizens. I mean, this kind of narrative is. Uh, which I'm very familiar from Turkey, and I know didn't work there well, and I know the French history probably is not going to work well. At least we should warn them. Regarding religion and the Muslim world, I agree with Shadi that there is a huge problem of authoritarianism, dictatorship, especially in the Middle East, in the Arab world, and Iran, and the broader Middle East. But is religion something separate from that? Well, what is religion? I mean, the Saudi uh, scholars who say obeying the king, the sultan, is a requirement of religion is also an expression of religion. So those of the UAE Fatwa Council who says Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist because they don't obey the ruler, that is an expression of religion as well. So yes, of course, there is political authoritarianism, but even that political authoritarianism is using certain fatwas, certain jurisprudential bases, hadiths, you know, so that, that's why it is integrated with religion. And can we have an interpretation of religion that 
neither justifies political authoritarianism nor in itself as a you know Islamist movement doesn't generate authoritarianism is a key question. Let's look into Pakistan. I mean, Pakistan, the government isn't that authoritarian. There are Islamist groups that are pushing the government to be more authoritarian on blasphemy, for example. When somebody is not arrested for blasphemy by the authorities, these Islamist groups go and kill those people for blasphemy, taking it to revenge. So there are there is aspects of religious fanaticism out there in the Muslim world. We have to see that. I mean, worse cases of fanaticism, again, happened in other religions. There are worse cases of fanaticism against Muslims. White supremacism is a lethal threat. I mean, so um, this is not just a Muslim world problem, but there are interpretations of Islam that are authoritarian, oppressive, and so on and so forth out there, which I believe doesn't come from the core of Islam, but as historical interpretations. And yes, they are used by authoritarian regimes. Authoritarian regimes are surfing on them. They are sometimes co-opting certain scholars to demonize others as the enemy, and it goes on like that. But even in Turkey, I see how authoritarian interpretations of Islam is generating political authoritarianism, or at least political authoritarianism is surfing on it, even in Turkey, which is still constitutionally secular and, and so on and so forth. I want to hear what Shadi says, and then I'm going to play devil's advocate to keep um, asking you some things that I've actually seen both online and that um, I've read in terms of the articles and arguments um, as a counter question to that crisis, Islam is in crisis idea. Shadi, what do you, how do you see everything that Mustafa told us? Yeah, so when people say that you know, France has a problem with religion writ large, uh, I don't totally buy that because um, French secularism disproportionately affects Muslims because Muslims are disproportionately religious. So, um, and that gets to a bigger issue. And you, Riyadh, you mentioned that um, my argument that is Islam is exceptional and my, my book on that. Um, I do think Islam is fundamentally different. And this is where maybe I do agree with some folks in Europe who otherwise don't like Islam because they would say, oh yeah, Islam is different, it's bad. And it has to, look how it's so resistant to secularization. I look at that same reality, Islam's you know, historic resistance to secularization, and I don't necessarily see that as a pejorative thing. I think that religion does have a role in public life. It should have some role in public life. We can disagree on what that looks like. But I'm not someone who thinks that all religions over time should be privatized. That's where I sort of diverge um, from the European critiques of Islam. And I guess the subtext, of, uh, the subtext of a lot of debates when we get into this issue of is Islam a problem, it's almost as if people are frustrated that Islam isn't changing the way Christianity changed. They're like, why can't you Muslims get your act together? Every, you know, the Christians went through this and look, they're fine now. And Christians in France don't really practice all that much. Why can't Muslims make the same adjustment? But I would ask, why should Muslims have to adjust their personal practice of religion as long as they're following the law, as, as long as they're not harming other people physically in France? Do they really have to adjust? And that presumption that Muslims should adjust and become republic, uh, French-style Muslims and this idea of creating a French Islam, 
that's where I think I get a little bit nervous. But, um, but at the end of the day, we fall back on this problem in quotation marks that Islam, unlike Christianity, um, private practice in Islam has public implications. So in that sense, things that otherwise are individual have a political impact. And that's why it gets very hard to define what political Islam is, because technically, if you use the broadest conception of the term, wearing a headscarf could be perceived as having political implications because it does have political implications in France, whether we like it or not, right? So, um, and then, you know, and this is where also the issue of neutrality comes in. So for, uh, French officials will often say, well, the law is neutral. It's not explicitly targeting Muslims, but the problem is discriminatory laws historically often are technically neutral, but they affect one group more than the other. And just like, um, you know, someone on Twitter made a kind of joke in reference to this whole French debate. He said, this is what he said. He said, he was talking about a hypothetical law. The law in its majestic equality forbids the rich and the poor alike from sleeping on the streets. So if there was a law that said that, that you can't sleep on the street, that's neutral in the sense that it applies to all citizens equally. But obviously, if you're rich, that's not going to be a problem because you have a place to sleep. If you're poor and you have trouble accessing shelter, it's going to affect you disproportionately. So I think we have to be very careful about this illusion of neutrality, which in my view is a smokescreen for discrimination. Um, you know, but on the broader point, this is, I think, where, um, you know, Mustafa and I um, part ways, uh, maybe in, in some sense, but obviously in a very friendly way, because we're all friends and we like each other a lot. Um, th this question of should Islam change? Is there something wrong with Islam? I think there's something wrong with Islam if you're a secularist. If you're a hardline secularist and you think that the trajectory of human society over time is one that should lead to more privatization of religion because that's your conception of progress with a capital P, Islam is going to be a problem for you. So I don't actually take it that personally. I have friends who are pretty hardcore secularists. I can tell they're not comfortable with Islam, and that's fine because Islam is kind of a problem for secularization and secularism if you think that's what people should be. Even if you think that everyone should become a small L classical liberal over time, that that's the natural trajectory, Islam is going to be a bit of a problem. And I, not to say that Islam can't become maybe a little bit more liberal in certain ways and in certain countries. I think that it can move more in the direction of respecting aspects of freedom of expression. But is Islam ever going to be 100% in accord with classical liberalism? No. Well, first of all, it's a religion, and classical liberalism is a philosophy, so it's also like a little bit of a weird comparison. I have so many questions that I'm ready for because I know what both of you think kind of on this topic. So I want to keep picking you both in, in different directions. So from what I gathered also, Shadi, is that you spoke a lot about the situation of Muslims kind of in Europe, whereas I think that it's important and let's keep bringing, uh, I'm going to keep pushing towards the idea of Muslim majority countries, what happens over there and what happens 
overall in the Muslim world, again, quotation marks, because we have to define it and that's problematic and it goes back and forth in terms of people wanting to use it or not. But Shadi, tell me what do you think about two paragraphs that I'm going to read you from a particular article. I think Mustafa would agree, but I want Mustafa to add his opinion on this as well. Basically, it's actually, it's two articles. They have been published by Al Jumhuriya English mid-November. I don't know, have you read it? It was on the crisis of Islam. The first one was by Ziad Majid, Farouk Mardam Bey, and Yasin Al-Hajj Saleh. That article was called On the Crisis of Islam in Defense of Discussion. And so the gist of the article, basically, they write, they say the French president is not wrong to say Islam is in crisis. Muslim intellectuals themselves have been saying so for generations. What he neglected to add, however, was that the entire world is in crisis and that the crisis of Islam embodied in the rise of violent nihilism that loathes the world is exacerbated by the growth of the populist, nationalist, extremist, and racist currents all around, which appear no more concerned about this world than the Islamist nihilist. So then they go into this history, as they call Islamist nihilism, but they talk about global securitization politics, reliance on torture regimes, weakening of democracy, rule of law, war on terror globally. And then they say in the conclusion, like opposing sides of the same coin, Islam faces two major interrelated issues in today's world. The first is Islamist nihilism, which has raised the level of cruelty within brutalized Muslim societies and across the world as a whole. The second is bigotry against Muslims in its various forms and degrees. And they say a world without direction and purpose cannot see one side of the coin without ignoring the other. So they say that it's not late for a clearer and more radical thinking that presents the Islamic question and crisis as one facet of global crisis. And I know I want to hear what Mustafa says about this idea because it's been before, you know, okay, maybe Islam is in crisis, but everything is in crisis. That's one nuance of the thing that I would like Mustafa to elaborate. And then specifically Shadi on this other article from the same series, which basically says it was written by Abdul Wahab Kayali, who is a Jordanian researcher. And the title is On the Crisis of Islam, Muslims and the Question of Equality. So don't talk to me about Europe, uh, Shadi, right now. Talk to me about the specific things that I'm going to tell you about, about the Muslim-majority countries and how you see it, considering that obviously you wrote two books, at least, on it. So what Kayali writes is, I see the Islamic crisis that we ought to discuss today not as that of the nihilist extremist minority, but rather that of the mainstream that constitutes majorities in Muslim societies today. It is this crisis which I believe the authors of the previous article I cited overlooked, the crisis of the Muslim-majority. And he goes on and says, the global Muslim community's hysterical reactions to the killing of Pati, which entailed moral equivalence between an act of murder on the one hand and on the other Macron's opportunistic statements, and the contemporary facts of French racism and so on, have grave connotations and pose difficult questions for today's Muslims. Here it goes. Most Muslims are not nihilistic and yet exhibit an alarming comfort with Islamist nihilism, are largely apologetic towards it, and equated with other behaviors that heinous though they may be are simply incomparable. Equating murder with the drawing of cartoons being perhaps the most obvious example. Reading the article by Mardam Bey, etc., one might conclude that Muslims' problems today lies in the closed public spheres within their home countries. I would argue by contrast that Islam's crisis consists in a sizable proportion of the Muslim community, which may well constitute the mainstream Muslim majority who struggle with the concept of equality in their home countries and elsewhere, 
and in both open and closed public spheres alike. To just continue, but to conclude as well, he says, this same crisis can be observed in widely differing Muslim communities of various socioeconomic and development levels in which living conditions differ considerably. Muslims adopt both superiority and victimhood narratives about, about which Yasin al-Hajj Saleh has written extensively that play formative role in constructing the Muslim communities. So, you know, he says the preeminent crisis, Islam's preeminent crisis, is not merely a clear reflection of the world's bleak geostrategic order, as the authors of the previous article argue, in which Muslim communities are exposed to political insecurity abuses, nor is the imperial West, which reinforces Islamist nihilism, the largest or most important agent in this crisis, in both open and restricted public spheres, free and less free societies with high and low development indicators, mainstream Muslim communities refuse on principle to be equal with members of other faiths, Abrahamic or otherwise, and particularly with those of no faith at all. Here I am, a believer Muslim, uh, wishing well, giving you these arguments out there, wanting first Shadi to tell me what he thinks, or Mustafa, but I want Shadi to comment on the second one, and then Mustafa, you are, I think I'm more curious in the first uh, article in your reaction, because there they say, well, yeah, Islam is in crisis, but everything is in crisis, so relativizing potentially on that problem. Who wants to go first? These no. are tough questions, Riata. Well, because it's easy to talk about what Europeans <laughs> are not Christians or non-Muslims. No, I'm joking. Yeah, I'm joking. Yeah. No, so, it's, it's true. I mean, it's not easy to talk about this, but I always, and that's why at the beginning I said, I think that three of us here are Muslims who are believers, who discuss these topics with heart in the right place. And if we point some things that happen, then that's because we, you know, have problem we have problems with the way that our beautiful our religion is practiced in certain countries in um, manifestations that I don't believe are or are said in the Quran. So who wants to go first? I can say a few things because I wanted to pick up on what Shadi said. Okay. And and connect yeah. the point. I disagree with Shadi on one thing. There is a difference between saying that there is no need for any change in Islam in its interpretations and then saying what we mean is all Muslims should be secular and not practicing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not arguing that Muslim societies should be secularized. Nobody has a right to ask for Muslims to become non-practicing Muslims, right? The question is, can we become a non-coercive religion? Yes, I mean, you can wear your hijab. Wear the niqab, I will fight for that right as well. I mean, Muslims have the right to practice their religion in France, and so on and so forth. What about, you know, some Muslim not wearing the hijab in Saudi Arabia or Iran? I mean, will we force them to wear the hijab there? Uh, yes, they will, because they have certain uh, understanding of emr bil maruf and nahi al munkar, commanding the right and forbidding the wrong. Uh, what about apostates? Can people become apostates, you know, ex-Muslims and speak out their mind, or will we kill them? Well, they, we will kill them, a lot of authorities will tell you, because that's in their jurisprudence. What about blasphemy? Will we punish people for blasphemy or will we look the other way around? That opens a whole chapter from Charlie Hebdo murders to a lot of things that are happening from Pakistan to Nigeria. So my argument for some change in our understanding of Islam is all about non-coercion. And yes, this is a liberal idea, 
But I think it's a very fundamental idea, and it has gone beyond classical liberalism. It's become one of the, it's become human rights. I mean, it's, it is in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I mean, the humanity by and large accepted that you can believe in a religion or not believe in a religion. And we have mainstream authorities in the Muslim world who will say, no, 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 that's against you know, Islam. And here you have a tension. So I'm not speaking about secularization. I'm not speaking about religion losing its power. That's what some people might have in mind, especially in France. I mean, the ideal Muslim should be, you know, drinking and whining and dining and not caring about religion. So I'm not speaking about that. Muslims have all the right to be conservative, pious, and so on and so forth. And that's a very important religious freedom value there that I would struggle or fight for. But then I would fight for freedom from Islam, as was the chapter of my book. The fact that, you know, there are Muslim non, there are minorities in the Muslim world. Do they have equal rights? Some people say no. Do Muslims have the right and the duty to coerce their understanding of Islam on other groups? I think that's the key thing. So yes, in that sense, I do believe that Christianity has changed on these issues. Christians were worse than us. They were burning people alive at the stake, but they have taken some historic step towards non-coercion. In Catholicism, it took a longer time, but ultimately with Second Vatican and acceptance of the legitimacy of the secular state, religious freedom, freedom of speech, these values took time, but it happened. And it has happened in some parts of the Muslim world, in some circles, but not in others in Islam. And I think a lot of the discussions we're having about the Muslim world today goes to those tensions. And on top of that, there are religious political layers and there are sociological layers and, and so on and so forth. So to come back to the questions you quoted, I mean, yes, there are a lot of things in crises these days. I mean, American democracy, you can say, in, is in crisis because there is a president who doesn't fully you know, accept the election results. You can say identity politics is a sign of crisis in America. I mean, there are a lot of things, liberal period. There are a lot of things. Globalization brought a lot of crisis because people saw different cultures in their face and some didn't like it. So there's a lot of trauma going on in the world right now. But as a Muslim, as someone who's been thinking about the Ummah and its issues, I see a fundamental problem there in our not yet taken step towards a non-coercive religious stance on matters of piety and, and dignity of Islam. And the second article you quoted, that's, you know, which was arguing that even mainstream Muslims do not fully accept being equal. Yes, I mean, that, that was an expression of that. And again, it would be hard to speak of, I mean, in Bosnia, I'm sure the overwhelming majority of Muslims are quite fine with legal equality, but ask that in Egypt, and Shadi knows better than me, that, you know, not everybody will accept legal equality with non-Muslims, which was brought in, in during the Tanzimat and Ottoman Empire, but, you know, it's a struggle that's going on. Are you, uh, Mustafa, are you saying that we sh that we Egyptians should be more like the Turks? Or Bosnia? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I mean, certainly don't be like the Turks. Be like the Tunisians. <laughs> I, I, yes. I, uh, I, I wrote an article saying a few years ago, Turkey is not a good model. Is there's a good model? It's Tunisia, where no camp dominates each other, and power doesn't go from one, at least so far. I mean, it's been... Uh, I mean, in the Arab world, I think Tunisia has become... To, the Tunisian constitution making process in 2013 is something we Turks never have been able to do, which is political groups in a society agreeing on a fundamental text. It has never happened in Turkey. It's always after a military coup or last time a populist right-wing leader, you know, brings a constitution a self-serving one. Yeah. 
Well, so, I mean, um, I, look, I, I agree that learning how to be less coercive or non-coercive should definitely be a priority. Now, the question is, where does this tendency towards coercion come from? I mean, if we look at polls, it's certainly true that on Islamic issues, there are some pretty intolerant ideas that large majorities of, of Muslims subscribe to, including in places like Egypt, but also Pakistan, even Indonesia and Malaysia to some extent, to different degrees. And um, now the question is, so let's say someone believes that blasphemy should be prohibited by law. Now, obviously, um, killing people for blasphemy is is absurd, and I, you know that that should not happen anywhere. But it's possible to imagine, you know, a somewhat democratic country. Let's say Tunisia in twenty years; it's still kind of democratic, although flawed. And you have like a little bit more of a um, a, a little bit more of an conservative Islamist party that comes to power or a Nahda becomes more conservative over time, and they're able to pass a law um, in parliament restricting certain kinds of depictions of the prophet. And, you know, maybe maybe it would just be fined or, or some, some not like not a huge punishment. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, that's not my approach to Islam, and I'm sort of in the weird position that I myself am a liberal, um, in part because I think I'm, because I'm born and raised in America and I'm a product of a classically liberal society. So I find myself in the odd situation where I'm, a, I'm basically a classical liberal, though I have my criticisms of liberalism, but I am somewhat def de deferential to illiberalism abroad because I want to be able to suspend my personal biases and what works best here in America and what works best for me as um, a more quote-unquote progressive Muslim, I don't necessarily want to expect other people to have a very permissive approach to blasphemy like I do. I mean, I think that um, we should always err on the side of more freedom of speech and not less. Um, and I think, you know, a Muslim should ideally like get over it because um, I think it's absurd to be freaked out by a cartoon of the prophet, but other people are different than me. And if they decide legally and through a legitimate democratic process that they want to introduce some restrictions on that, um, I just don't feel like I'm really in the position to tell them that that's, that that's like a terrible thing and that means they're backwards, so on and so forth. Um, so we, maybe that's... Nobody said, yeah, sorry? nobody said they were backwards, but we're talking about standards you you, you take extremists i mean both of you talk about blasphemy but what do you say shadi about the fact that over 45 countries in the world some with muslim majority populations and some with muslim minorities have codified codified or uncodified muslim family laws that govern family relationships that are really discriminatory towards fellow muslim women and girls and that that inequality and discrimination in the family affect them especially in terms of education employment livelihood travel uh, sexual reproductive health financial rights community and political participation and here i am talking uh, about something that i obviously personally care about regardless of the fact that i'm currently in dc and that musawa uh, actually the global movement for equality and justice in the Muslim family has been working on since 2009. And that these, we're talking about these de facto and de jure Muslim family laws, which are the source of discrimination against women. So 
these are laws, Shadi. It's not just interpretation of somebody believing something in me. I don't care what they believe if they don't but become laws in this way and they are interpreted and they are they have source within some religious interpretation, which is why Musawa states, for example, that what makes reform of family laws possible is the fact that it's often resisted on the grounds that Muslim family laws are divine and thus not open to change. But for people like these Muslim women, and obviously men who happen to be Muslim and who happen to support this cause, they also say that change and reform, like Musawa does, have been inherent in Muslim legal tradition, which means that we have the tools, we have the legal methods, and that we have to think about what these notions of gender rights in classical fiqh and jurisprudence meant, how they were socially constructed over time. So the fact that somebody tells you something today, don't you have to think about how it came to that point? Yes, okay. So the way that I would answer that is, I don't know how how productive it is for us outsiders in the sense that we're not in the countries in question to kind of just say Muslims should be X, Y, or Z. What I do think is helpful, though, is that if there is greater space for freedom of political participation, of being able to express your opinions, which would happen through democratization in the Middle East, that would create a more conducive atmosphere for learning to live with the other. And I w- so my interest more is not in promoting liberalism, but in promoting pluralism and intellectual and let's say epistemological humility. This idea that you can have very conservative views. What, don't talk to me about conservative views. Again, I don't care. I don't mind conservative views, Shadi. What do you tell yeah. the fact that even though I'm in DC, my fellow Muslim sisters, your cousin maybe or not and here is me muslim i'm not liberating afghanistan like laura bush or whatever this is i'm quoting people who use islamic tradition and our arguments from within the quran to also you for example you said something a minute ago you said why would i tell somebody that this is the right way why would somebody who is a founder of musawa for example who believes in the justice that comes from the quran and the justice comes from god and that the socially constructed laws which are actually now the yura laws this is not opinion shadi this is something that i'm not going to go to egypt and tell them so what do we do about these things why are we not talking about how it came to this and why how are we going to change it is it all about democratization and let the laws that are so discriminatory keep on going until we live with each other well first of all in some kind of process of democratization there would be a constitution drafting process where there would be red lines established about the limits of what a majority can do and presumably there would be some clauses on equality between men and women as tunisia did quite to its credit so i think that that's the first step is there has to be some agreement on basic equality but within that there's going to be quite a quite a bit of room to operate and that's ultimately up to what the citizens of a particular country decide and you hope that over time they have a, a less coercive approach and that they um, become more comfortable with conceptions of freedom of expression and pluralism I just don't know how that's going to happen very quickly and I don't it'll be a messy process. And I don't know if me writing as an English speaker and an English writer, if I, I just, I guess I'm just skeptical of this idea that we tell people about more pluralistic interpretations of Islam and then 
they'll listen to us and they'll change their view. I think it's going to be a slower, more organic process. And it's very much dependent on first establishing political freedom. And then religious pluralism is more likely to develop afterwards. So I see the sequencing a little bit different. A lot of people say, first, you have to think about religious pluralism, and that will pave the way for political pluralism and democracy. So this kind of prerequisites of democracy argument. I'm just very skeptical of that because religious change happens very slowly, and Arabs and Muslims can't afford to wait 30 or 40 years for people to have more pluralistic religious interpretations. Then we tell them, hey, now you guys can vote for your leaders. It's also very unlikely that people will have more, more open-minded views of religion in a context of authoritarianism. Because by definition, if you live in a dictatorship, the, you're not really, you don't really have any space to think creatively and originally about new Islamic interpretations because no one's really no one's really having debates. No one's speaking openly without the fear of persecution. So what you have to do as a first step is remove the fear of government persecution. Then there can be a more free-flowing and even sometimes contentious discussion among citizens about the future of Islam. How can we talk about the future of Islam if there isn't already if there isn't freedom to talk about those issues. Thank you, Mustafa, for patiently waiting. Uh, I just want to say that I, I think, Shadi, um, I would have so much to say, but I want to let Mustafa say it first. But I think it's funny how, for example, for 15 minutes, you and Mustafa were talking about France, whereas you here say, how, who am I to say those people over there? And you happen to be a Muslim thinker as well, and a believer as well, who produces arguments related to your religion and your tradition. So I think that that is kind of, funny uh, in a way that we have to really talk about this, especially we have to talk about it rather than Macron. And I am not saying anybody over there. I'm quoting people from over there and from Musava, which is, by the way, a global movement. And another thing which you said, for example, Muslims don't have time to wait. You're right. Women don't have time to wait. It's 2020. We're talking about very huge number of movements of scholars, females out there who have produced incredible amount of knowledge on why this is not right. And I'm just talking about women, but I'm talking about minorities that Mustafa can tell us a little bit about. So let's just like, it's funny. I'm not going to tell those people over there. Whereas you told Macron 27,000 things so why don't we discuss it? Well, France is a fellow democracy. I, I, I know Mustafa probably wants to say a few words. It, it, I think it's, I, I see France as a little bit different than some of these Muslim majority countries that I hold them, I hold France to a higher standard because it, it says that it commits to, to, to religious freedom and freedom of expression to some extent. It is a democracy, I am, but I am also very respectful that if the majority of French people want a strict interpretation of secularism, I don't agree with their approach, but I have to respect it. So I guess like my, my coherent principle is that you have democracies and you give people the freedom to make their own choices. They have agency, and then we can disagree with the outcomes, but ultimately there has to be some deference to what the citizens of any given country decide is appropriate for them. Mustafa, um, thank you for your patience. You're welcome. I think Shadi overrates democracy a bit more than me, uh, and this is a constant conversation we're having, especially being from Turkey and seeing what has happened in the past 10 years. 
Of course. I mean, first of all, I agree that, I mean, the tyrannical regimes in the Arab world, such as the one in Egypt or the Gulf monarchies and so on, Saudi Arabia, of course, their political oppression, this allows society to freely discuss many issues, politics first, but also many religious issues as well. That's true. So we should open the lid and allow societies to discuss these things. And, and, and it has worked well in Tunisia. You know, let's not forget the, the, the regime that was overthrown in Tunisia was a very French-style secularist regime. It was, it was the only actually secularist, strongly secularist regime in the Arab world, which had things like hijab bans or beard bans and so on and so forth. It was overthrown. And what came after that was an openness some question marks, but not a chaos, and ultimately a working model so far. But let's not forget that this was allowed greatly. I mean, Tunisia has institutions like which helped the quartet and all that. But this was helped greatly by the very fact that the main Islamist movement in Tunisia is Nafta, is the most progressive of all Islamists. And Rashid Ghanoushi, its leader, intellectual, spiritual leader, a political leader too. He's also someone who has worked out these issues. I mean, his, his books on public freedoms in the Islamic State in the 1990s was a remarkable book in terms of defending freedom of speech, freedom of religion from an Islamic point of view. That's why he was less of an alarmist, alarming Islamic figure compared to some of the more other people in Egypt from the secular perspective, which allowed. And actually, by the way, Ganoushi ultimately said, we're even abandoning political Islam and we're becoming Muslim Democrats. And so there has been an evolution. Uh, so which comes first, political freedom or discussions about toleration and openness? Well, we need all of them. I mean, I don't know what, which one to choose, but, but, I'll tell, but there will be things that we cannot sacrifice to democracy. Imagine, you know, I mean, think of Jim Crow laws in the United States. I mean, what, what if a white majority back then, 100 years ago, thought that some people should be slaves and that's they democratically vote for it? And that would be clearly violating the human rights of a minority of a society. Today, there are things in the in Muslim majority societies, you can go for a referendum and you can say, should apostates be killed? You will get a yes in a referendum in Pakistan for sure, and probably in Egypt as well. But should we say democracy? You know, people chose it. I uphold human rights about the democratic process, let alone dictatorships. How do I uphold that? I mean, I don't have a mechanism for this, but I'll just would not say the majority wants that. Just in the same way that in France, I will not say. The majority doesn't want to see hijab, you know, around. It's kind of disturbing, you know, but, you know, it's their country. Well, it's their country. I understand it. But I will say, wait, dear people of France, there's something called religious freedom. And on that principle, I oppose the democratically legislated laws that would ban hijab in schools or so on and so forth, as I would go to the Hindu supremacists of India and I would say, you're democratically elected, you're the majority, but these Muslims, the minority in your country, these 90, 190 million people, have the right to be equal citizens. So therefore, I think when we look to different parts of the world, you will see sometimes Muslims as the potentially oppressive majorities or oppressed minorities. All of them need the values that we call human rights. And I, I'm not expecting Tunisia to become Norway the next month, you know, on 
of course, societies evolve and these values evolve, but the, the need for a change, a doctrinal change on these issues is there. Otherwise, what happens is, imagine you are a sec, like secularist in Egypt, which was the case. I mean, imagine you were supporter of the you know, Tahrir movement and all that, but from the secular side. And you see Islamists winning an election and you see the Islamists are going somewhere. You know what their ideal is and you know that will threaten your lifestyle. What do you do? You cheer up for the military coup, which is exactly what happened, which was exactly happening in Turkey. I don't support those military coups. I'm so against them. And I, the tyranny there is disgusting and should be exposed. But I, we should understand that if you have, to, if people have to choose between different alternatives that are authoritarian in themselves, they will go for the authoritarian model that will uphold their lifestyle and not the other, uh, not the one that threatens them. So this is the vicious cycle I think we've seen all across uh, many Muslim majority countries. Uh, Tunisia so far, mashallah, you know, has got <laughs> has shown an alternative path to us. I hope it will go. I know it has a lot of problems there as well. But doctrinal issues are important. That's why. That's why, I mean, it's significant when Muslim scholars get together in Marrakesh and sign a declaration about, you know, rights of non-Muslims in Muslim-majority societies. So that is important. That's valuable. Uh, those things so, are I think, needed. Mustafa, what does that change, though? Because I'm actually quite skeptical of these declarations. They get a lot of hype, and sometimes it seems like the main audience is actually Western audiences and inter interlocutors to make it seem like these regimes are tolerant, even though they're quite authoritarian. I mean, the Marrakesh Declaration, things like that, there's little evidence that that actually seeps into the public consciousness and actually changes millions of hearts and minds. That's where I think there's a gap. We can talk about doctrine, but I just don't see the next step of how that actually makes a noticeable, tangible difference on the ground. I'm just curious, like, how do you see that? I mean... The, lots of those things are done for cosmetic reasons for consumption in, in Western media. That's fact. I'm not saying about the Marrakesh Declaration per se, but a lot of the things that has happened in the UAE in the past couple of years, I mean, uh, welcoming the Pope and so, that was mostly done, I believe, for a Western audience to show that we are the moderate ones. A Turkish Islamist group did that for a lot of its own PR in the West. I mean, that's another story. So, if something sells in the West, sometimes people do this just to buy that, but actually they're not really interested in that idea. So you have a point there. But on the other hand, if we, besides the cosmetics, we need to change minds on certain issues. Imagine how did we Muslims get rid of slavery? It was in the Sharia. Well, the laws were brought in. Laws banned slavery. First, slavery, slave trade was banned with some British imposition on the Ottoman Empire, but not imposition, but lobbying on the Ottoman Empire. And ultimately, you know, one uh, Al-Azhar gave a fatwa saying, actually, you know, Islam always wanted to abolish slavery and so on and so forth. So it has taken time, but it worked sometimes with laws imposed by an authority, sometimes by Muslim intellectuals calling for it in the first place, then mainstream scholars a little bit catching up. The same thing is happening today. I mean, as Harris sometimes saying good things on certain issues. I'm not saying whether they say this because CC will be able to, you know, show this to a Western audience and get something. But you have to work on these issues and whatever the positive input comes, I think it's valuable. But yes, it should not be cosmetic. It should be discussed within the society and there should be a genuine change in these things. But what makes me nervous is that some of the most vocal proponents of quote-unquote Islamic reform 
are also the most brutal and authoritarian and anti-pluralist. I mean, Sisi has given major high-profile speeches about religious reform. The UAE, which is actually not just repressive, one of the more repressive countries in the Middle East, all it, it goes on and on endlessly about religious pluralism and tolerance and a new approach to Islam. I mean, that... So, you know, in the abstract, I think you're right in a lot of ways. In an ideal world, we would see this Muslim intellectuals calling for doctrinal change. But in practice, the fact that these calls for doctrinal change are so often tied to imposition, it's not happening organically from the bottom up, where Muslims themselves in a grassroots way are saying, it's time to change. It's coming from top-down authoritarian regimes. But Riada has her friends in Musawa and everything who's working on a lot. Of, there are a lot of civil society NGOs, not from the regime zone. Yeah, it's it's definitely happening. What most of us said when you said, how does it happen? It is happening. There is no pope, obviously, in Islam to tell us this or that. So it's a free market of ideas. So what we actually Muslims have to talk about is why are those Salafi, jihadist ideas the most... Pro well propagated online so somebody who's very vulnerable in Paris banlieue goes and reads it and then goes to Daesh but there's a lot of things happening and there's there's always been a lot of things happening and of course it does not happen in a vacuum and I think that what needs to be happening is Muslim scholars leaders community leaders from these level, lowest levels in every country etc and then globally connecting having a conversation regardless whether they're in DC or in Marrakesh or in Kuala Lumpur because we have zoom exchanging ideas and coming from within tradition things could change and are changing and have always changed when it hasn't been imposed and the good changes that have been constructive that have happened obviously have been like Mustafa said through argument etc and if you want Mustafa or Shadi please just briefly do for our listeners reviewers tell your opinion on why we don't think about there will be a reformation the same way that it has been in Christianity, et cetera, because I don't think that any of us are talking about it and, or that Mustafa and I actually believe more in the possibility of uh, things moving in that direction. Uh, tell me that, but I do want to add before I forget uh, to chip in something from the Balkans in, in terms of uh, that experiences from the Balkans do show, particularly in Serbia, and unfortunately now with the latest elections in Montenegro, how regime change is definitely not always a change um, for the better. I don't think that Shadi necessarily says that in terms of democracy, nor am I obviously against democracy, but we have seen, you know, democratic transfer of power, but the latest government has, you know, we, for the first time after several years, we don't have a, a Bosniak or a minister for minority. Bosniaks have been in Montenegro attacked. The mosques have been attacked. So without liberalism or liberal democracy, I think that, just saying, oh, well, now it's pro-Chetnik government that came and now for four years we're going to have to fear for our lives because they're calling some of them for new celebrities so that we should stop arguing the importance of freedom. And have you both uh, maybe read Francis Fukuyama wrote a really long, great article recently. He was talking about liberalism being in crisis, obviously. I don't think anybody can deny that. And so he goes on and he describes classical liberalism, how can it be how it could be understood as a this institutional solution to the problem of governing diversity. So, Shadi, I would like you to tell me a little bit about that because Fukuyama explains very, very, in a very detailed manner how 
liberalism is connected to democracy, but it's not the same thing. It protects individual autonomy. It implies a, a right to political choice and to franchise, but it's not the same as democracy. But then it goes and it talks about after all of the explanations, why he thinks that now it's fact, in fact uh, more necessary than ever to work for liberalism. And that is, he says it's more necessary because it is fundamentally a means of governing over diversity. And the world is more diverse than it ever has been. Democracy disconnected from liberalism will not protect diversity because majorities will use their power to repress minorities. And he also says the liberalism's present-day crisis is not new. Uh, since its invention in 17th century, liberalism has been, Fukuyama writes, repeatedly challenged by thick communitarians on the right and progressive egalitarians on left. So in the Muslim-majority world, we're never, we, we haven't had it, um, except for Tunisia, as you guys say it, so we can't vouch for what might happen over there. But how is it not beautiful, as hard as it is, to argue for the ideas of freedom and equality for all. That was me getting philosophic because I, I, see, I, I, I see no other way and no more writer way. And then letting God say who is a better believer and also read most of his book in April when it comes out. Are you confused, Shadi? This is definitely not a actual family, you know, like <laughs> ganging up on you. I think we just, I'm, and I'm giving you arguments by other people because I'm, you know, to, to kind of enrich the conversation. I feel so vulnerable now. But you're one of us, regardless, even though you know your <laughs> secret, you know how, oh God, um, I have to add, I have learned so much of slang that I never understood thanks to insults to Shadi over online uh, in a way that I have to go to Urban Dictionary to see what something is because it's part of American culture or not. But some one that's very understandable I, I mean, in terms of languages, that they say you're a secret closet Islamist. Uh, all the time. <laughs> Whereas Mustafa, he's a self-orientalizing whatever, you know, all the time in the mildest form. Yeah, the secret Islamist thing too. Yeah, it yeah. depends okay. on who you ask. Yeah, yeah so if you want, um, Shadi, I mean, what do you think about Fukuyama's arguments, if anything? Because I think that even though he might be thinking about a crisis of liberal democracies, and we know that we haven't had many of those examples in the Muslim majority countries that he says, well, despite the crises that let's give it, it's happening, we need it more than ever. Um, and then he explains why as fundamentally the means of governing over diversity, because if not, what, what results? Well, well, first of all, if we're talking about the Middle East, I don't really see liberal democracy as an option in the short to medium term for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, so, then we have to just be a little bit more realistic. What are the available choices in front of us for the time being? Mm -hmm. And I think that generally they tend to be ostensibly secular authoritarian regimes or democratizing regimes or systems that are going to have some, some or even more than some illiberal features. So if I had to choose between a somewhat illiberal democracy that's flawed or a secular, a, a, a liberalizing authoritarian regime or whatever you want to call those kinds of authoritarian regimes that pretend to be more liberal or pretend to be more tolerant and all of that. I mean, for me, the choice is really simple. The choice is the former. Um, and I know some people don't like that or disagree with that. 
And I'm just trying to be a little bit more realistic there. Um, I mean, that's one thing I would say. When it comes to the Fukuyama's argument, I'm sympathetic to it, but part of the problem is what liberalism are we talking about? And here I sort of take inspiration from the works of someone like Patrick Deneen in his book, Why Liberalism Failed. There is a tendency for liberalism over time to cease to be classical liberalism and to become a more ambitious and maximalist liberalism. That liberalism over time demands more and more for itself, that it's not anything close to neutral. It's its own comprehensive doctrine that imposes a kind of worldview on citizens. Obviously, it's not nearly as bad as other ideologies because it's still there's still freedom and there's still um, individual agency and so on. But I think we have to be careful, especially when you look at something like the woke movement, which, you know, obviously that, that's not classical liberalism, but over time, liberalism in America has not been content to have this hands-off approach. Um, and that's why I think that, you know, and this is where liberalism and secularism can become a little bit intertwined in complex ways, that increasingly in Western democracies, there's a discomfort with religious conservatism. So I go back to that because I think it's important that um, in America, we see that among Democrats and the left, that um, this very maximalist form of liberalism um, is seems to be threatening traditional forms of life and religious interpretations that are more conservative. So in theory, if we could have a, very, a more minimalist um, classical liberalism, I think that's that's great. I just don't know if that's what is really on offer in the West. So I think, anyway, there's a lot there, and that's a there's a big conversation about, um, you know, uh, you know, liberalism is only neutral to those who are already liberal. If you're not a liberal, then liberalism can seem quite constraining. Hmm. Um, yeah, Mustafa, of course, I'm going to let you talk and uh, I, there's so many more questions. Um, I, I do want to let us also um, kind of get towards the end. Unfortunately, maybe we do part two, but I do want to say that Fukuyama also speaks about what you say, Shadi, in terms of American content, context and that he talks about how many progressives on the left, as he says, quote, have shown themselves willing to abandon liberal values in pursuit of social justice objective, objectives, but and that they have not yet succeeded. Uh, in seizing the commanding heights of political power in any developed country. And then he continues in saying an open question for the future is whether cultural dominance today will ultimately lead to political dominance in the future and thus a more thoroughgoing rollback of liberal rights by progressives, which is very interesting and what you, I think, talked about a little bit. But, but, but do you not grant at least this, that like he says as well, um, that liberal values like tolerance and individual freedom are prized most intensely when they are denied. People who live in brutal dictatorships, um, they want the simple freedom to speak, as he says, associate and worship as they choose. But uh, so, so it's it's different thing about what we speak about in Western democracies and then what I believe, and Mustafa Filas in right now, you argue for the wider world in terms of what's um, related and adequate for most, not adequate, but what Muslims in those repressed regimes want, right? I mean, we open a lot of cans, so I mean, we uh, we will need more, you know, another session, uh, yeah. you know, for these. But finally, I mean, let me say I agree with Shadi on many things and also uh, 
his emphasis on liberalism has taken a bigger turn uh, in, in the West. I mean, I, first of all, the term liberalism in America has its own meaning compared to the, let's say, continental tradition. Uh, when from Turkey, what I know when we call liberalism is classical liberalism. In America, it just moved to a different direction. But yes, I mean, the people I see in the name of liberalism an effort to engineer society to change people's uh, values, you know, as in France, you know, on certain issues, on gender issues, and so on and so forth. Despite the fact that they're not coercing anybody, they're just keeping their values to themselves. So there is that effort in America, which triggers, which is on the left, which is triggering a far-right reaction on the, from the other side. So there is a crisis precisely, I think, because of that. Uh, Shadi said nobody is putting maybe classical liberalism on the... Well, we, we, we at Cato do. We call it libertarianism, and, you know, it's, it's what we stand up for. I mean, I think my colleagues at Cato can, you know, articulate these ideas better on regarding U.S. politics. I'm just uh, working more on the Muslim world and Muslim thought. But, uh, but the thing is, there are no solutions, but I think we have to see the whole picture. And Shadi has been emphasizing the problem with authoritarian regimes in the Middle East, especially the Arab world. He's absolutely true about that. And these regimes poison their societies. The Islamists under these regimes become more radical, typically. Although Shadi has shades and grades of persecution, you know, and intricate theory there. But ultimately, violent persecution makes them jihadists. And then these regimes turned into us. You see, we are persecuting the Islamists because that's why we should be their allies. By the way, we also love interfaith dialogue, dialogue and take a few photos. So yes, there is a uh, scheme there that has to be exposed, name and shamed. But I also think that once we get rid of that, we will still <laughs> deal with a lot of theoretical issues about human rights and Islam, equality before law of women, of minorities, of atheists, of seculars, and so on and so forth. In Turkey, those issues are poisoning the political landscape from a different, I mean, we don't have the exact same problem with Sisi in Turkey. We have a whole different thing, but I see how certain understanding of Islam, which were quite normal five centuries ago, are now shocking with people with more modern values. And those people are there. I mean, when we say Muslims, we're not only speaking of conservatives, there are large swaths of modern Muslims who have embraced what we would call liberal egalitarian values. In every Muslim society, it leads to a clash. So this needs to be worked out. Imams and sheikhs will have a role in this and the muftis, but intellectuals may play a role as well. And uh, Shadi is emphasizing the political aspect, which is important. I maybe a bit more emphasize the jurisprudential theological aspect, which are, I think, both necessary and maybe complementary. Yeah. I do want to ask you some fun questions completely unrelated to politics. Grant me five more minutes because I wanted to ask you both these things. And I do at the end of every podcast, ask this so the listeners and viewers kind of see you in a little bit more different uh, humane light as well. So the first question towards that, now that we've both all agreed on um, on more um, serious stuff, or that we agree that we disagree, is Shadi, first to you, and most of the same question will go to you. Once the current emergency is over in terms of global pandemic, and I put it quote unquote, because for some people, there has never even been emergency in terms of health um, pandemic. Whenever that might happen, Shadi, is there anything that you would not want to forget from the lockdown, from the global pandemic period, from 2020? 
Hmm. That's an interesting question that I wasn't entirely prepared for, but I'll, you know, I'll give it my best shot. I would say um, one major lesson for me since all this started is um, I've realized that I don't really love politics. Hmm. Um, I like the more kind of like broader intellectual questions around culture, religion, and identity. But I think that what the lock, what the initial period of lockdown helped me realize is that I derive considerable pre- pleasure from like reading novels. I, I've been reading a lot more fiction, and I'm you know that's good. I've been watching more classic movies. Um, I got I had this like short obsession with um, the Swedish existentialist director, Ingmar Bergman, and I watched 15 of his films in rapid succession in the span of like two months when lockdown started, even though his movies are not easy to watch. But I think there's a bigger, more important thing that maybe other people can relate to that I think life is elsewhere. And by elsewhere, I mean the American obsession with day-to-day politics, I think is incredibly unhealthy that we almost are deriving our meaning from politics and we go on Twitter and we have more time and we're getting in arguments Mm -hmm. and it, this is not the way it should be. And meaning should be found from non-political things. And I, you know, this, I, I've developed somewhat more of an appreciation for religion. Um, I think religion is more important now and, or at least it should be more important for a lot of people but also the things that it's kind of banal and cliche, but friends, family, relationships, but also just trying to find where the more lasting um, sources of happiness are. I mean, I'm, I'm working on a new book now, and I guess what I've found is, I mean, I'm kind of excited about it, but also kind of not thrilled about it because, you know, after I finish this book, I'll probably feel pressure to write another book and then another book and will it ever really make us content? Is this ever going to give us the kind of fulfillment that we desire and need? And I think that um, what a pandemic can do is that it forces us to contend more with our mortality. And thinking about our mortality in turn means that we try to prioritize or, or pay more attention to lasting sources of contentment. And I just don't think writing books is a lasting source of contentment. Well, I realized that like 10, nine years ago when I decided to marry Riyadh that, you know, writing books is not the only thing that matters in my life, that should matter in my life. Um, and by the way, Shadi, I've noticed that you are building this argument, which I liked a lot and found interesting. You know, argument for God, arguments for God or religion are named the argument from cosmos or the argument from nature. You're building an argument from society, you know, that, you know, you see how lack of religiosity creates political religions, which is, which explains a lot about 20th century history of communism and fascism and all that. And, and I think you see political religions popping up in the U.S. as well, and their zealotry, you know, poisoning a lot of things in the landscape. So, I mean, that's very interesting. I mean, I think because when you lose any transcendence, everything becomes... This worldly, right, and whatever your political tribe is in becomes a matter of everything. That's why I, I salute you on that. One advice, if you want to expand, I mean, Swedish films are good, but get married and make, make kids. They will leave <laughs> less time for Swedish movies, but 
uh, will also fulfill your life and we will be supporting all your endeavors and hopes on that. And we'll be praying for that too. Thank you, Mustafa. Yeah. Keep an eye out for me. You know, I do. Sorry? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, will I cut this out? But I do keep an eye for you out there. I haven't found anything. After the pandemic, we'll be more active. I mean, we don't. Yeah. We just see trees and squirrels in our kids. Yeah, and in the spirit of classical liberalism, let's also, of course, say that different people find transcendence and meaning in different things. Mustafa, that uh, people who don't want to get married and have kids are um, absolutely capable. Yeah, it's an advice. It was not a dictate by law, sure. It worked for us. Um, it worked for us. So uh, that's how we work. Don't go away. I still have more fun questions. Everybody's going to be wanting to hear more about you. Wait, is this, is Mustafa uh, not supposed to answer that question? Oh, he's going to answer all of those, but it's short questions, but it's not <laughs> fun questions. Um, which of your personality traits has been most useful, Shadi? Not the best trait, but the most useful. Mustafa, that's also for you after Shadi. Wait, which personality trait has been most useful? Which of your personality traits has been the most useful in life to you, in your opinion? Not the best trait, but the most useful. And you can answer in any way you understand it. And different people in my podcast give different answers. Huh. Um, I think that um, this actually goes back to what you said at the beginning about me being a contrarian. But I think that I'm... I know that I can sometimes go too far and I have to be a little bit self-conscious about contrarianism for its own sake. And I try to, I try to keep myself in check when I, when I realize that I've crossed a certain line perhaps, but I, I am happy, you know, looking back at, at least up until this point in my career, I, I think, I think I, I like the fact that I have an instinctual distrust of the conventional wisdom because that that allows me, I think, to pursue my work in a certain way and to try to seek out my own answers. Sometimes I still end up being wrong, but I think considering how much the conventional wisdom has been wrong, um, especially here in the U.S. in the past 20 years on a number of different issues, foreign policy, domestic policy, a lot of things that everyone thought would be true but weren't, um, I think it served me well, or at least it's made me more interesting, even if it hasn't always served me well. Um, and I think that one thing I, I don't want to do is to be boring. And I, I think that it's my role as a, as a writer and an analyst. I want to challenge my readers. I want to push them, including on my own podcast. I, I want, yeah, I think, I, I think that one of the most useful things that you can do with people is to push and i want to do i want to do that within reason obviously i don't want to push too hard but i think some pushing is useful most of you what which of your personality traits has been most useful i don't need entertainment i could just sit down <laughs> for the rest of my life i only i don't get bored i just need a room a computer and books i mean before that was the life before you and with you, of course, new aspects came in and, and kids and life and marriage, and that's beautiful and wonderful. You're really, really, really productive, alhamdulillah. Uh, but you are, you have absolutely been capable of, I don't think I've ever, ever honestly found uh, you not being there for the kids. So that is... Of course. I mean, so I have missions. I don't have hobbies. I have the work mission. I have the family mission. I have the kid mission. And I'm good. I mean, I don't... 
and you do learn or you like to make mistakes, right? I mean, I'm, I'm human. Yeah, I mean, those, those things can more human in the eyes of the audience who always just listens to your argument. This is, fa- I mean, Mustafa, this is fascinating. So you can just work nonstop the entire day without like being like, oh, I'm sick of this book, the, this chapter I'm working on. You can pretty much just go endlessly until someone stops you. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing is, of course, I was more like a boring when I was single. I respect the fact that I don't have needless interests. I mean, I'm focused on what I'm doing and what I'm doing is family and work. So because these two people are obviously my friends and a husband, they have granted me the luxury of being with them for an hour and a half, if not more. And I really, really appreciate that. But that also kind of is uh, t- testifies what I said at the beginning, that we do have these conversations that take a long time. And I miss these conversations. Uh, I miss these sort of exchanges that are really meaningful, constructive, and even when we agree or disagree, that we understand or that we are willing to take um, other person's perspective. I think that we lack that. I think social media makes that much more difficult. I sometimes actually, when I see some argument by a person that I know happens to follow me and I know what they're about, but then when they get into interaction with Mustafa and they start talking this stuff and I'm just like, I think, I wish that you guys met over a tea. I think that a lot of times things that go on in terms of conversations on Twitter would go absolutely differently if they happen in real in real time. So that's uh, one aspect of social media that I don't know if it could be changed. But in terms of these engagements, I really appreciate them. Thank you, Mustafa. Thank you, Shadi, for granting me. I know how busy your schedules are. Thank you, Adam. This is great. Um, is there anything that you would want to say at the end to wrap it to wrap it up or to just say, uh, guys, we started when it was still um, daytime and now it's nighttime and I've had so much fun. So, yeah. I'll just say, Riata, thanks so much for having us. I really enjoyed this. It was great to see you guys and hopefully in person sometime soon, God willing. And um, this is, yeah. yeah. Thank you. No problem. Uh, thank you so much, Shadi. And good luck with that book until we see you next, hopefully soon. Mustafa, um, <laughs> I'll see you soon. Is there anything that you would like to say? Is there anything you'd like to say at the Thank end? Thank you, Riada. This was great. And you know, it's the first podcast I did with you. I mean, you did with me, and it's it's great. And we should do this again. I mean, with Shadi, it's book fun. Comes out. I think that when your book comes out and when Shadi actually yeah. did, um, I think that we'll have a lot of more uh, really new new um new basis to talk about stuff and i'm very curious to, to hear what Shadi will think about it so anyway as i say at the end of um, each podcast hold tight to those you love and stay tuned for more conversations with people from all around the globe have a nice day and take care